So let's talk about salty Christianity or salty Christians. Personally, I love salt. I'll put it on anything. I remember growing up, my mom's like, will you put that salt shaker down? You don't need to put salt on everything. I put it on everything. But what I learned pretty quick is you can sometimes have a little too much salt. And the very thing that enhances the flavor of what you're eating can actually detract from what you're eating. And it can become a negative rather than a positive. Well, when I figured that out when I was a kid, I remember growing up, my dad, he, he drank coffee all the time. And we had one of those glass sugar bowls where you could see the sugar in there and he'd have it on the kitchen table. And every morning he'd get up and make a cup of coffee and put a couple scoops of sugar in there. Well, one day I decided to change the sugar for salt. Of course, in the glass sugar bowl, it's still white. It's still granular. It looks just like sugar. So I'm standing there in the kitchen and there goes dad. He goes over to the glass sugar bowl, takes the top off, one scoop. Two scoops, stirs it up, and I'm going, this is going to be great. And sure enough, he takes a sip, and man, that stuff went everywhere. Because salt does not taste great in coffee. It's not meant for that. So, oftentimes, as Christians, we want to be salty. We're called to be salty. Jesus said you are the salt of the earth. But we want to make sure we have the right amount of salt in our life, and it needs to be the right kind of salt. You know, earlier I said we're not to be the salty Christians that we just got off the boat with the, with the sailors, and we have that salty attitude or salty language or whatever. We need the right kind of salt in our lives so that when we encounter other people, just like when they encounter something with the right amount of salt, it creates this desire in them, I want more of that. It enhances the experience. It enhances the flavor. And it causes a desire for more. You know, when you have a, a, a dinner or a roast or some sort of food where you put the just the right amount of salt on it, it enhances the flavor, and you go, yeah, that's... I want more of that. That's the type of saltiness we are called to have in Christianity. We don't want to have too much in the sense of the wrong kind of salt. And we also don't want to have too little where if you had something that is very bland and you're like, boy, this needs some salt. You know, in life, sometimes Christians are bland. They just kind of blend into the background. And there's nothing that stands out about them. They mirror the culture or reflect the culture rather than being a response to the culture. That's what we're called to be, is a response to the culture, not a reflection of the culture. But if you're a reflection of the culture, you're sort of bland. There's no saltiness there. And it's like, there's something, you know, I was expecting something better, and I didn't get it. So that leads me to Matthew 5.13, which is exactly what we had mentioned earlier. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, 
how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So here's the thing. Jesus calls us to be the salt of the earth. We are to have this quality about us that enhances life. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and life abundant. Now, I know, as Pastor has mentioned many times, a lot of times that abundant life is preached as health, wealth, lots of money, great success, all that stuff. That's not the type of abundant life Jesus is talking about. The type of abundant life that Jesus is talking about is the abundance where we are the ones who are victors and not victims. Too often in the church, too often for Christians, we think like victims rather than victors. Of all people on the planet, Christians have the right to think like victors, not victims, because of the gospel. That's the whole message of the gospel. The victory of Christ has now become the victory of the Christian. Jesus has defeated Hell, death, the grave, the enemy. There is nothing the enemy can do to defeat us other than to get us to think like a victim again. And too often in our lives, we think like victims rather than victors. And when we think like a victim, our circumstances then influence us rather than us influencing the circumstances. Other people influence us rather than us influencing other people. We become bland, or the worst case scenario is we become salty the wrong way. Spend five minutes on Facebook and you'll find a whole bunch of Christians that are salty the wrong way. They're not shining the light of the gospel. They're shining the light of their anger, their bitterness, their rage, their political viewpoints, whatever. That's not the type of saltiness God is calling us to have. The type of saltiness He's calling us to have is that salt and light that draws people to the peace and victory of the gospel. That's the type of saltiness. Not a political platform. Not a political ideology. Not for this or for that or whatever, to Jesus. That is the saltiness we are to have. But oftentimes, and and really, the church in the United States has really lost its saltiness. It really has. It's become very bland, and a lot of churches are a reflection of the culture rather than a response to the culture. If things are going to change in this country, it has to start in the church. It has to start in the church. We pray, you know, we pray all the time, Lord, revive us again. Revive this country. We want to see an awakening. During the Second Great Awakening, the evangelist Charles Finney, he's considered the father of modern revivalism. Before anybody really recognized that there was another great awakening happening, he had been going to churches for years. And he started in the church, calling the church to repentance. Not the culture, the church. One of the things that really drove him into that perspective 
is before he even became a Christian, he was asked to attend a, a, a prayer meeting. And he would go to this prayer meeting every week. And they would pray for the same things over and over and over and over again. And eventually, Charles Finney said, you know what? I, I don't want to go back anymore. I don't, I don't want to come back here. You people say you have power. You people say God has power. Yet you've been praying for the same things over and over again and nothing happens. Why do I want to keep coming back here? And then he has this encounter with, with the Lord and the Lord just wrecks him and he starts going into the church and calling the church to repentance. It took years for the church to finally get on board. Many churches kicked him out and didn't want to have anything to do with him. In this country right now, we need a revival in the church. We need the church to get back to the place of walking in victory rather than victimhood. We have to be the salt that Jesus has called us to be before the culture is awakened. Because if the culture is awakened, where's God going to send them? To the church that's not even walking in a salty way that they should be? Where's he going to say? And then they become the way the church is? No. He needs to revive the church so he can awaken the culture. It always starts in the church. So how do we get back to where we need to be? Well, that's where I really want to get to tonight is talking specifically about the aspect of how God salts our lives. How do we become salty again? What is God doing in our lives right now to salt us? If you have your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 9. There's a very interesting verse in Mark chapter 9. It's down near the end of the chapter. And one of the things about this, in Mark chapter 9, is... Jesus, again, is talking about salt. So in Mark chapter 9, you know, he, in this same chapter, he's talking about, you know, if, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your hand causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, those type of things. And he says in here in verse 50, salt is good. And this is a parallel here to Matthew 5.13. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how do you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. But in verse 49, right before that, Jesus says this. For everyone will be salted with fire. Now, some versions add in there, and every sacrifice will be salted with salt. But everyone will be salted with fire. What? Now, of course, he's when he's referencing this, he's referencing believers, okay? Everyone will be salted with fire. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Now, that add-on there that, that some of the manuscripts and some of the translations say is, and... Also, and the sacrifices will be salted with salt. Now, if you go back into the Old Testament, you notice that salt was used a lot in the sacrificial system. And the salt was a representation of the covenant. There are some areas where 
God tells Moses, you are not to make a sacrifice without salt. The covenant in the New Testament, of course, is the gospel. The new covenant. Bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. So, the aspect of salt in our lives, connecting that to covenant, is the gospel. But there's also an aspect of sacrifice. Now, Paul in Romans chapter 1 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Old Testament sacrifices were salted with salt. New Testament sacrifices, which is you and I, were living sacrifices, are also to be salted but with fire. Now, from a charismatic perspective, we hold to sort of a charismatic perspective here at Turning Point Church, meaning we believe in the full giftings of the Spirit, we believe in the full moving of the Spirit, Sometimes in the charismatic side of, of the fence, if you will, or charismatic side of the church, we focus a lot on the Holy Spirit experience. You know, we want an experience with the Holy Spirit. We love that experience with the Holy Spirit. We love the fire, we call it, of the Holy Spirit. But there's an aspect of the fire of the Holy Spirit that is not ecstatic, it's refining. There's a refining fire of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to talk about that a lot, though, do we? Because the refining fire of the Holy Spirit is there to burn things off of our lives that don't need to be there, that need to be removed. Every sacrifice, or everyone, will be salted with fire. The Lord salts our lives through that development process. It's not just saying yes to Jesus. That's the starting point. Yes, there is that entry point. The gospel is a foundational aspect for Christianity. You say yes to Jesus. You accept that free gift. Jesus becomes that propitiation, that, that self, that, that suffering servant who took the wrath of God on your behalf. And we accept that free gift from Him. But that's not the end of it. That's just the beginning of it. In his book, Gospel, J.D. Greer says this, the Gospel is not the diving board that gets you into the pool of Christianity. It is the pool. When you become a Christian, you don't go, oh, that's it for the Gospel. You don't get away from the Gospel. You get deeper into the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not just from hell. It's the power of God unto salvation from everything in your life. Every stronghold, every demonic oppression, healing, everything is bought through that atonement sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I think as Christians, sometimes we're like, oh yeah, I know the gospel. You know, Jesus died for my sins. And I get to go to heaven one day. Well, yeah, that's true, but that's not the end. There's so much more to the gospel. And oftentimes, we 
we think that, okay, I get to go to heaven one day, but today I'll just live my life. Jesus is very clear. You cannot be my disciple if you're not willing to give up everything. And everything in the Greek means everything. You remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, what, do I, what must I do to earn eternal life? He said, go sell all your possessions, come follow me. And he's like, whoa. You know, can I just pray a prayer or something? Join a church and, you know, show up on Sunday? Nope. You got to give up everything. When we say yes to Jesus, we're not just saying, I want to go to heaven one day. We're saying, Jesus, here's my life. I'm willing to sacrifice everything for you, the gospel, and your kingdom. Not just tomorrow, but today. We may not realize that, and we may not necessarily take it seriously, but guess who does take that seriously? Jesus takes that seriously. When you say yes to Jesus, He takes that seriously, and He says, okay, let's get moving. Let's get developing. Let's get changing. Let's bring on the refining fire of the Holy Spirit. We want to come up here and have that experience, but when we walk away, we want to keep the, you know, the good fun. Yeah, all right. But when we walk out the door, the Holy Spirit's still going with us. And he's like, oh, okay, well, you got this going on in your life. Let's see if we can fix that. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, you know, I think I've said this before. If you've ever been a guest in somebody's house, you kind of stay in the guest areas. You know, you don't go rummaging through their drawers or their medicine cabinet or go into their, their bedroom and start pulling out their drawers and going through the closets. You don't do that. You stay in the guest areas. Well, Jesus is a terrible house guest because he starts rummaging through everything. He'll start opening all the drawers, opening the boxes, opening the doors, pulling out all that stuff. Stuff you had put away years ago and said, I don't want to deal with that. Oh, really? What's in there? Let's get in that box first. You know, a lot of times in our lives, we ask God, will you open a door for us? Not realizing the very door we're keeping Jesus from opening is the door he needs to open in order for us to move forward. Jesus will go into every area of our lives, and he will meddle. But the thing is, Jesus is also willing to respect your decision to say no. He'll push. He'll push. He'll push. But if you keep saying no, 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 you go, okay, that's as far as you want to go. That's as far as I can take you. The refining fire of the Holy Spirit is meant to burn off everything in our lives that holds us back from moving forward and becoming the people God has called us to become in order to fulfill the plans and purposes God wants us to be involved in. It is hard. It is difficult. It's 
painful. Fire is not fun to play with. Especially when it's consuming you. Remember Moses. When Moses encountered the burning bush, there's an interesting phenomenon here. The, the thing that caught Moses' eye about the burning bush was that it was not consumed. It was burning but not consumed. And really, that was sort of a picture of Moses' life. Moses had this burning passion in him to deliver his people. You remember he killed the Egyptian because he was living in Pharaoh's house and he saw the Egyptian beating a Hebrew and he killed the Egyptian because he wanted to deliver his people. But it was the wrong time and the wrong way. Right passion, wrong time, wrong way. And he ended up going around the wilderness for another 40 years in preparation. And when he encounters the burning bush, the bush, the bush is burning but not consumed. Moses had this burning passion in him, but it had yet to consume him. After the burning bush, the rest of his life is consumed by God's purpose for his life. God has a purpose for us. He has a passion He has put within you. And for a lot of us, that passion is burning, it's just not consuming us yet. Because there's stuff in our lives that have to be burned off first in order for our lives to be consumed by the fire of the Holy Spirit. We have to be refined before we can be released. If we're not willing to submit to the refining process, God will not release us. So what does that refining process look like? I want to talk about three different aspects of this refining fire of the Holy Spirit. This salting with fire. Because in these last two years, woof, boy, has the Lord turned up the flame. And not just corporately, but I know individually. For a lot of people, the Lord has, woof. I mean, He has just gone from 4 up to 11. And just turned that sucker right up. And He's adding gasoline to it every day. It's like, man, when's this thing going to go out? When you're consumed, that's when it's going to go out. Because at that point, the only thing that is painful in that refining process are the things that God wants to get rid of in your life. And when we finally let them be consumed, then we can be released. But that's painful. And it's a process. So there's three specific areas that I want to talk about this refining aspect of the Holy Spirit. Being salted with fire. Because as God salts us in these three different ways, we become the salt of the earth. We become that salt that draws people to Jesus. So let's look at this first area. This first area is found in Deuteronomy chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles there, Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is a very interesting passage. I remember the first time I read that, I just stopped. I'm like, whoa. Because if you're familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, the word Deuteronomy means second law. The entire book of Deuteronomy is a retelling of the entire journey of the Exodus and the wilderness wandering. By the time we get to Deuteronomy, the new generation has has been risen up in the wilderness and Moses recounts everything for them in preparation for them 
to go into the promised land. So in chapter 8, Moses says this, starting in verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you, and He let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Remember Jesus quoting that verse. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is where it comes from. Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is a fascinating passage in Deuteronomy. Moses is pulling back the curtain for a minute and showing Israel what God had done over the last 40 years. Here's what God had done. He says to them that God, this whole way during these 40 years, has led you in the wilderness to humble you. We live in a culture, especially here in the West, where humility is considered a weakness. Humility is considered a lesser position. That pride and arrogance and and confidence, arrogant confidence, is what gets ahead. In the kingdom... Humility is what God is after. And there's things that are in our lives right now. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what the Lord is doing. But there are things in your life right now where the Lord is trying to humble you. Not destroy you, but humble you. The enemy gets in and wants us to believe that God's trying to destroy us. Or that these circumstances are there to destroy us. Here's the thing about God. God is sovereign over all things. We know we say that. We believe that. Okay, yeah, God is sovereign. It's a great theological truth. But here's the reality of what that means in your life right now. That means that everything that is in your life, every circumstance, every person, everything that's going on in your life right now is either authored or allowed by God. There is nothing going on in your life that God is not aware of that He is either authoring or allowing. He is completely in control. And He's allowing those things for one one of many reasons, but one of which is to humble you. And oftentimes we resist humility. We resist being humbled because we believe the lie that we're not good enough. And we believe the lie that these circumstances are a commentary on our worth. That is a victim mentality. How do I know I'm thinking like a victim if I think I'm not good enough or I'm not worthy? I'm not, I'm not whatever. I'm not lovable. I'm not in, in, you know, fill in the blank. That is a, that's the fruit of a victim mentality. Now, I'm not saying that to condemn anybody. I'm saying that to say we all have a victim mentality going on in our head to one degree or another. And we have to recognize that. 
we have to realize that these thoughts are still running in our heads. And the answer to that is not to resist it, but to be willing to be humbled by it. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will lift you up. To humble you, to know what was in your heart. You know, sometimes we'll say, well, you know, the Lord knows my heart. Yeah, He does. And if He revealed it, you'd be petrified. You'd be absolutely petrified at what's in there. That's why He doesn't reveal all of it all at once. Hebrews 4.12 says this, that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is a revealer of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Do you realize that when you get into the Word of God, when you read the Word of God, it begins to read you? And the more you get into the Word, the more it's going to read what's in your heart And it's going to begin to reveal what's in your heart. Now that revelation may be new to you. It's not new to God. He knew it was there all the time. But it may be new to you. And that revelation sometimes petrifies the daylights out of people. They get into the Word. It starts getting into them. They're like, whoa, where's all this stuff coming from? And then they get out of the Word because, again, we think it's a commentary on our worth. We approach it from a victim mentality rather than a victor mentality. Here's the thing about the gospel. The gospel gives you a brand new identity. If any man is in Christ or woman, they are a new creation. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Your righteousness, your worth before God has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has nothing to do with your past. It has nothing to do with the junk that God's bringing up in your heart. It has everything to do with the gospel. The only commentary on your worth is the gospel of Jesus Christ if you're in Christ. It's the only commentary. So if you are truly understanding the gospel that, you know what, I've been made worthy... And because I am worthy, these things that are in me that are coming out have no no effect on my identity. It's okay that I see them, and it's okay for God to get rid of them because they're no longer a truth of who I am. God's doing some spiritual surgery. But if I believe they're a commentary on my worth, I'm going to try and hide them again. I'm going to close that door and say, Jesus, stay out of there. And the more we close doors, the more we cut ourselves off from the development process. To know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commands or not. And He humbled you. And He let you hunger. That's interesting. He said, Moses says, He let you hunger. You know, oftentimes we, you know, we have this perspective of God that He'll never let us get uncomfortable. And that if we're uncomfortable, then there's something wrong. You know, I mentioned politics earlier. You know, back in the last few elections, we've even before that, we've had these big prayer movements before the big elections, before the presidential elections. 
And a lot of times, we, we see this desire, we want one particular candidate over another, from one particular party over another, whatever side it is. And we say, oh, Lord, we want your will to be done. We want your person. We want your, your, your individual to be in there. But oftentimes, I, I fear that we're not praying for God's will. We're actually praying for our comfort. We want to be comfortable again. It's really uncomfortable under this particular candidate, under this particular administration, under this particular party. Lord, make us comfortable again. God's not in the comfort business. He's in the character business. And your character cannot be developed in comfort. Now, God is the comforter in that He will comfort you in your sorrow and in, and in your struggles and all that. But that's not the type of comfort I'm talking about. I'm talking about the American Western, I just want to be comfortable comfort. God's not in that business. You cannot be developed in comfort. You can only be developed in struggle and in pain. That process is painful. And if you're, if you're unwilling to get out of your comfort zone, you cannot be developed. So the Lord, or Moses says, He allowed you to hunger that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Part of the humility that God wants us to recognize is that we can't do it. We can't do it. Only He can. As you know, I'm, I'm about to be full-time with SUM, but we've been associated here with SUM for many years. And one of the things we used to do with our students, we used to take them to Mardi Gras. The thing I loved about Mardi Gras was we would take these students from all across the country, hundreds of students, but when I took the students from here, we would go to Mardi Gras. And the way we would do this, it's a big evangelism outreach. The goal of this, this aspect of SUM is to get students passionate for the gospel and evangelism. Because that has been lost in this country, in this church, in the church in this country. We have lost the passion for the gospel and evangelism. So SUM takes people to Mardi Gras, because if, if you can evangelize in the middle of Bourbon Street, you can evangelize anywhere. So we literally take students to Mardi Gras onto the street of Bourbon Street and go, Go get them. <laughs> Go get them. Sick them for Jesus. And they are petrified. They're absolutely petrified. Every student that I had taken to Mardi Gras on that first night coming back, Friday night was the first night we would ever go on the street. They would come back, and I would have to talk all of them off the ledge. I love that conversation. It's my absolute favorite aspect of SUM. Now, of course, we don't do Mardi Gras anymore, you know, since the apocalypse. But one of the things I loved about that is they realized they can't do it. Oh, welcome to Christianity. God already knew that. You just hadn't figured it out yet. And now that you're in a position to realize you can't do it, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out there one more time, just one more day, and let's see what the Lord does. He humbled them. 
He let them hunger to make them know that man does not live by bread alone. And I'm telling you, every single one of them after that second day were like, oh my gosh, look what the Lord has done. And they're like, I want to come back next year. Because they went beyond themselves. They reached the end of themselves, and for the first time, they encountered the beginning of Jesus. And it changed everything. Every single one of us in this room needs to reach the end of ourselves in order to experience the beginning of Jesus. Because the more we hang on to ourselves, the more we're unwilling to walk in faith. We have to get to that point. So God is going to work in our lives. The circumstances in our lives right now are designed to humble us, make us hunger, so that we may know that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What God is doing in your life right now is designed to get you to that point. That's part of the refining fire of the Holy Spirit. It's part of the salting by fire that God is doing in your life right now. Don't resist it. That's number one. Number two comes from Judges chapter 3. Let's go to Judges chapter 3. Here's another area where God pulls the curtain back. And it's fascinating. Judges chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Here God pulls the curtain back again. Now by the time we get to Judges, we're past Joshua. Joshua has led the, the Israelites into the promised land. The Lord tells them to go in and wipe everybody out. But of course they don't do that. So by the time we get to Judges, Joshua has, has died. And if you remember Judges, Judges is this cycle of faithfulness, unfaithfulness. Faithfulness, you know, it's this merry-go-round where they just keep being faithful and unfaithful. And God raises up a new judge to deliver Israel. And they're, you know, they live in peace for 40 years or so. And then that judge dies. And then they go back and be unfaithful again. Then they cry out to the Lord. God raises up a judge. And it's just this cycle. Well, here in Judges chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, this is what the Lord, this is what, uh, the Lord does and is doing for Israel. Judges 3, verses 1 and 2 says this. Now, these are the nations that... Wait, the Lord left? Wait a minute. I thought it was Israel that failed to get rid of them. Well, it was. But it was also the Lord allowing those nations to stay there. Because remember, it's the Lord who's in control, not Israel. It's the Lord who's in control, not the other nations. So the Lord allowed them to stay. These are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. What? Here's that testing aspect again. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all of the wars in Canaan. Now he's referring to the, the taking of the promised land under Joshua. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war, to those who had not known it before. Well, what in the world is God doing here? God has allowed nations to remain in the promised land. For Here's another generation that has risen up. They have not been involved in the wars to originally take 
the promised land. But now they're having to war with these nations that are still there. Why? So they know how to war. They need to learn how to fight. That's what the Lord is doing. He's teaching them how to fight. Why? Because the kingdom of God is advanced through war. I don't mean physical war. I mean spiritual war. We are all in a spiritual battle right now. The enemy, even though he's defeated, is not going down without a fight. And each and every one of us needs to know how to fight. We need to know how to be involved in spiritual warfare. The enemies that are in your life right now, that you're still battling, maybe they're personal enemies, maybe they're personal temptations that have been eating your lunch for years, maybe they're things that just don't seem to want to go away, the Lord is allowing them to stay to teach you how to fight. It's, they're not there to defeat you. They're not there because they're stronger than you. They're there for you to learn how to fight. God wants you to know that there is a power greater in you than is in the world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The only way you come to know that is not theological understanding. It's personal experience in overcoming whatever it is that's eating your lunch. And no doubt, everybody in here has got something that's eating your lunch. You know, kids don't bring lunch money to school anymore. But back in my day, we used to bring lunch money to school, you know, and the bully would show up and punch you in the face, steal your lunch money. Well, the devil's walking around punching a bunch of Christians in the face every day, stealing their lunch money. And God's allowing it to happen. Why? So you can learn how to fight. It's not because you're weak. It's not because you're a victim. It's because God wants you to get up, stand up, and allow him to fight through you. But you got to be willing to get in the fight. And too many of us, the second it gets hard, we go hide in the corner. We don't want any part of that. I don't want any part of spiritual warfare. I just want God to do it for me. No, he's going to do it through you. He's not going to do it for you. He's going to do it through you. Because you need to know who he is in you and who you are in him. When I was a police officer, you know, I get dispatched to people's homes, you know, people call 911. But people don't call 911 when things are going well. You know, they got a backyard in the, in, or they got a party going on in the backyard, a pool party, a, a picnic, whatever, you know. Anybody in here ever had a backyard party or something going on at their house? You know, they have friends over and everything's going great. You're having a blast. Anybody ever go, hey man, somebody call the cops. No, that does not happen. It's when things go off the rails that somebody says, hey, somebody call the cops. And the reason that they want us to call the cops is because they need somebody to come in and take control again. They've lost control. Things have gone off the rails. They need somebody to come in and take authority. As a police officer, I had authority. When I come in, my job is to bring order out of chaos. 
My job was to bring authority into a place where there was anarchy going on. As a Christian, the Lord wants to be able to dispatch you, if you will, into circumstances around you where you take the authority of Jesus in you into that circumstance and you bring order out of chaos. You bring order into somebody's life or some circumstance or some situation where you are the influencer, not the influencee. Because if you call 911 and the cop shows up and goes, whoa, this place is out of control, let's call the fire department. They go, what? What? Well, I called you. And if the cop gets overwhelmed, well, then now who are you going to call? Well, there's a lot of people outside these walls where you work, in your neighborhoods, people you know, in your families whose lives are off the rails and they don't know who to call. And Jesus is saying, hey, I want to teach you how to be dispatched into those circumstances. Not as a victim, but as a victor. You take the authority I've given you into that circumstance and you bring the kingdom into their life. You bring light into darkness. You bring hope into despair. You bring life into death. And things change. That's how we change this country. That's how you be salt and light to the world around you. But you need to know how to fight. I went through almost a year-long process to learn how to exercise my authority as a police officer. The Lord has got you in an academy, if you will, teaching you how to fight. It's not just for you. It's for those around you. It's for those around this, this church, in this community. There are people who are desperate that God wants to deliver, and He wants to use you to do that. But you got to be willing to be prepared. You got to be willing to be salted with fire and learn how to fight. Judges chapter 3. And then finally, the last one, number three is Matthew 5. We're going all the way back, right back to where we started. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall that saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The reason God is salting you with fire is for you to be the light of the world. To go out into the dark places and shine the light of the kingdom into those dark places, and then people go, oh, it's this way. You know, if I, if I light a match right here in this room, it's not going to do a lot. You turn all the lights off, I light a match, everybody's going to see it, and they're going to know exactly where to go. The darker it gets, the brighter your light can shine. Do not be afraid of the darkness. Do not be afraid of all the chaos going on. Do not be afraid of all the stuff you read on social media. 
You have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. You and I are the hope of this world. Too often we, we look at the world and say, Woo, you people are in big trouble. I don't know what you're going to do, but we're going to hang out over here. <laughs> we're just going to hunker down and wait till Jesus comes back. What? That is not a victorious church. That's not what Jesus has called us to do. Jesus has called us to storm the gates of hell. And the only entity on the planet that has the authority to storm the gates of hell is the church. That's it. There is only one plan. There's plan A and there's no plan B. And God has gone all in with plan A. And guess who plan A is? That's you and me. We are plan A. There's no plan B. But to be in the middle of plan A, we've got to be willing to be developed. We've got to allow the Lord to salt us with fire in order for us to be salty Christians. Let's stand. So I don't know where you are, what's going on in your life, what the circumstances are, but I want you to just think of these three things right now. Just think about all your circumstances. Think of all the junk that's going on in your life, the stuff, okay? What's the Lord doing in your life? Is he right now trying to humble you cause you to be hungry so that you may know that you do not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Is he trying to teach you how to fight? Teach you spiritual warfare? Is he calling you to be the light of the world? If you're a Christian, the answer to that is yes. So the real question is, are you willing to be developed? Are you willing to allow God to change your mindset from a victim mindset to a victor mindset? When I was a, a police officer, the last three and a half years of my career, I worked as a recruit training coordinator. Basically, I oversaw the training process for the new recruits that would want to be police officers. And I remember on the first day, we would, you know, bring in these new recruits and they're all, you know, shaking. Oh, what's going to happen? I don't know what's going to go on. And we go through all the spiels and yell at them, make them do push-ups, blah, blah, blah. But here's the hardest part of becoming a police officer. And it was the hardest thing for us as trainers to do to, to take a rookie and help them become a police officer. It's not teach them how to, how to shoot. We can teach anybody how to shoot. It's not teach them the, the physical training. We can teach anybody physical training. It's not the academics. We can teach anybody academics. It's not how to drive fast. Anybody can drive fast, right? You do that all the time, right? Those aren't the hard things. The hardest part of the recruit training process is to get those recruits to stop thinking like civilians and start thinking like police officers. The hardest part of Christianity is to stop thinking like a victim and to start thinking like a victor. And just like in the academy, there are just some people just can't make that jump. They just, and it's not that they can't, they just won't. 
I want to encourage you tonight to make a commitment that, you know what, Lord, I'm going to make that jump. I'm going to make that leap. Whatever it takes, however long it takes, I'm no longer going to think like a victim. If that's you, I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to pray this prayer with me as we close. I want you to say this. Jesus, come on, say it loud and proud. Jesus, tonight, I make a commitment before you and before these witnesses that I want to become the light of the world. I want to walk in your power. I want to know the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I submit to your development process. And I give you permission right now, Jesus. Whatever it takes, you have access to every area of my life. Refine me. Change me. Prepare me. So that I will never again think like a victim. But I will walk in victory. The victory of Calvary. The victory of the gospel. That I will be the influencer and not the influencee. And I thank you that you've heard my prayer. And you will do it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Give the Lord a hand tonight. Let me say one more thing. You know, on the other side of these doors, I know we're in a church, but guess who's waiting for you on the other side of those doors? The enemy. And he's going to whisper right in your head, Ooh, that was great. You had a great time. Now let me return you to your regularly scheduled lives already in progress. And you're going to get out into that parking lot and go, My life's still the same. You're not a victim. You're a victor. That's where you work it out is out there. Not in here. It's out there. So go out and walk in victory. Amen?